Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for teachers and students of drama. I'm Nick Waxman and today you will be treated to an interview we were fortunate enough to secure with John Bell, the director of Madame Butterfly by Puccini, presented by Opera Australia. This production is on the 2018 Unit 4 Theatre Studies playlist and so the questions are structured to give you insight into his version of this classic opera. John Bell is a remarkable actor and creative. He is considered one of Australia's most prodigious talents and an expert on Shakespeare. He has worked with all major state theatre companies such as MTC and STC as a director or an actor. He founded Nimrod Theatre Company in Sydney and, of course, Bell Shakespeare Company. He studied at NIDA and for five years with the Royal Shakespeare Company. He published a book titled On Shakespeare in 2011 and it was a reflection on his 50 years working with the Bard's Words. He has been awarded an OM, an AO, and an OEB. He has won a Helpman Award. His likeness won an Archibald Prize, and in 2016 he was named Humanist of the Year. He has received many other awards and accolades, but the last one I will mention is that he was named an official Australian living treasure. He was incredibly generous to give us his time and gave us 40 minutes on the production and an extra 10 minutes on working with Shakespeare. So this interview has been broken into short chunks for you to listen to. Just a little housekeeping. This was not recorded in the studio, and so the quality is not as high as it usually is. And now it is my privilege to introduce John Bell. Thank you very much. Uh, Yes, I directed Madame Butterfly ten years ago for Opera Australia. It was then called uh, Oz Opera. It was a sort of a touring branch of Opera Australia. It's now called something else. I can't remember what it's called now, but it's the same production, basically. Uh, it'll be the same set, and uh, the costumes will be uh, much the same, a bit refurbished, of course. And um, we're also adding a, a children's chorus, which doesn't actually exist in the original, but because this production goes all around the country, they like to pick up kids in each town it goes to and put them into the show, so that it <laughs> attracts the local population. And uh, it is, it's quite easy to add some children into the piece because there are, there's a wedding scene and there's a, an opening scene of Pinkerton's arriving in town and I can get the kids to run around and welcome him and make them part of the show. So we'll have about 20 kids on stage as well as the, uh, the regular cast, which will be a little departure. But otherwise it'll be the same production basically that I did 10 years ago. One big difference this time, which I'm, I'm very pleased about, is that we'll have a number of Asian singers in the cast. Um, and that, I think, will make quite a big impact uh, on the piece itself and also send a very good message about our culturally diverse nation around Australia, that it's not just, um, you know, um, Anglo-Saxon art form. Um, in fact, of course, it's an Italian opera anyway. But uh, in the old days, we are very used to opera singers making up to look Asian or blacking up to play, um, you know, um, black roles. That at the moment is no longer, is not uh, not tolerated, not not welcome. Um, and uh, I think I, I'm very pleased that we are um, giving Asian performers the opportunity to be in this, in this piece and also send that message about cultural diversity all around the country. It's very appropriate to the piece, of course, that there should be Asian singers in it. Um, That would not have been the case when it was written, and not until very recently, I would say, up until the 1960s or 70s, you might have found Asian people in the chorus of the opera, but not singing major roles. So the cultural shift that's happening across the arts in this country, all for the better, is to be much more inclusive of our cultural diversity.
And what role would you say status plays in this production? Well, in terms of the, 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 the story, they're all regarded by the protagonist, uh, Pinkerton, as being low caste because he's American. And so everyone else is low caste, naturally, <laughs> especially back then and uh, in Japan. Um, the piece is set at, you know, in the 19th century originally, but uh, I've updated it to just post-war. So it's the end of the Second World War and the American occupation of Japan. It's set in Nagasaki, after all, where we, uh, we dropped the bomb on the Japanese. And so this is the post-war um, period. And uh, the Americans, I think, uh, largely had a, still had a, a contempt for the local population, which is demonstrated in the action of the, of the piece itself. The Pinkerton is very prepared to take a Japanese girl and marry her. Um, knowing full well he'll dump her when the time comes and he'll go back and marry, and marry an American sweetheart. He says that straight up to the audience. That's what I'm going to do. So in terms of status and low status, he regards himself and the rest of the American community as being high status and the Japanese um, are all regarded by him as low status. And how do the high status Japanese characters deal with this situation? Well, there's only one high status character in the in the piece, and that is the uh, the priest who is the uh, also known as the Bonds, who is Cheshire um, San's uncle, and he storms into the wedding scene and says, "What are you doing? You've been down to the mission and converted to Christianity, and you're marrying this American. This is absolutely wrong," and that turns the whole community against her. So after that, Cheshire um, San Butterfly is more or less ostracised by the rest of the Japanese community because she has broken those protocols. And so at least as far as the Bonds is concerned, um, you know, the American has no right to be doing what he's doing. Have you used stagecraft to symbolically represent that shift when it happens? Um, yes, it's uh, when you're directing an opera, your main guide is the music. And with Puccini particularly, he's a wonderful dramatist. And the music is always um, dramatic and supportive of the, both the action that's happening uh, externally and the psychological action that's happening inside the characters. If you sit and listen to the opera enough times, you can see in your head exactly where the characters are walking to, how long it takes to get there, what they are feeling, what they are suppressing, what they are expressing. Uh, it's all there in the music. And so by studying the music closely, I can see in my head how the whole opera should unfold. and. Um, when to do dramatic lighting changes, for instance, how to arrange the stage choreography so that some people are dominating the stage, others are cowering away and giving the space over to the main protagonist. All those things become very clear as you listen to the music. Cowering is such a great word for our students to add to their theatrical vocabulary. So you would strongly suggest that anyone coming to see this would listen to the music before they come? Absolutely. I, I think you get much more out of an opera if you know the music. It doesn't mean you have to know it off by heart, but with all Puccini's operas, um, La Boheme, um, Butterfly, Tosca, they all have wonderful tunes, wonderful melodies, and it's no hardship to listen to them uh, again and again and get used to the music. Um, and if you can find a recording that has a, uh, a translation, that makes much more sense. It's, it's difficult to sit and listen to language, uh, opera in a foreign language. Um, nowadays, that's compensated by having surtitles in the theatre. Um, and in our case, we're seeing the opera in English anyway. But um, if you're studying it or preparing yourself to see the opera, then I 
strongly suggest you get a, a libretto, a translation, and read that along as you're listening to the music so that the music makes sense, you know, what they're singing about and what they're, what they're expressing. Well, that is the end of part one of our interview with John Bell. Uh, please feel free to keep listening to it as it moves across the episodes or find another episode that may tickle your fancy. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here and to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Please do not hesitate to email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thanks for listening.